the most powerful particle accelerator in the entire world is the Large Hadron Collider, or LHC, based in CERN. This is a ring that's 27 kilometers in circumference, and it accelerates protons to 99.99999% the speed of light, the fastest speed we've ever artificially accelerated protons to. We collide protons together in the clockwise direction with protons moving in the counterclockwise direction. We monitor what comes out and we look for new particles, new physics, new decays, and new interactions. This is where we are pushing the frontiers of knowledge. By doing it in this fashion, we've discovered a number of particles and processes in the past. And recently, earlier this decade at the LHC, we've discovered the Higgs boson. But that's not all that CERN does or that the LHC does, and that doesn't even touch on what the future of particle physics holds for us. What is that? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. Although most people, when they think of the LHC, they either think about that hoopla from years ago about how it might create a black hole that'll destroy the Earth, spoiler, it didn't and it won't, or they think about the Higgs boson and maybe how it hasn't found a whole slew of other things that physicists were looking for. But it's much more interesting and intricate a story than just that. And to help us understand how the LHC is contributing to the future of physics and paving the way to dive into the answers to some of the deepest questions we may have about the universe, I'm so pleased to welcome Dr. James Beecham to the show. James is a postdoctoral researcher on the ATLAS experiment, which is one of the two main detectors at CERN. He's a postdoc at Duke University, but he's based in Geneva at CERN on site there, and I'm so pleased to welcome him to the show. Hi, James. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much, Ethan. It is absolutely my pleasure to be here. Yeah. And so when I think about the LHC, you know, when I just read the news, what I saw years ago is it found the Higgs boson, and then people won the Nobel Prize for the discovery of the Higgs boson. And now I start to see these releases about how when will the LHC find the next thing? What else is the LHC good for? And if I didn't know anything about what was going on there, I might conclude erroneously that everything that's happened since has been kind of a disappointment. But I don't think the physicists who work on the experiment see it that way. What's your perspective on that? Well, it is indeed quite weird, to be honest, uh, to be a working particle physicist here at the, as you mentioned, the largest experiment that we have now, but actually it's the largest experiment in human history. Um, and it's been working swimmingly for something like 10 years, you know, and we've we've made so many fantastic searches for new particles. We've learned so much about the universe and we constantly are, you know, occupied day in and day out with the type of research that we do, either analyzing our data, this largest unique data set in human history, looking for evidence of new particles, uh, ruling out places where new particles could be, and uh, then doing R&D for the future, for upgrades of our machines, blah, blah, blah. And then to look at the popular science news sometimes and to see an article where it says something like what you're intimating, something where it's like, oh, the LHC is in crisis and desperate. It hasn't found anything else. You should look at these. And, and as a working physicist, you're like, wait, what? 
are we talking about the same machine here? This is a, it's, it's, so it's totally bizarre, in fact, to see these things because those of us in particle physics, we don't think that way. Um, the, the, you know, the, the, I think sometimes the disconnect, you know, we can go into this in detail if you like, but I think sometimes the disconnect comes from the fact that, you know, people have the, almost the wrong basic impression about what it means to be a particle physicist, what it means to be an experimental particle physicist, because, you know, the Higgs boson discovery, the thing that you just intimate, you talked about right now, um, you mentioned is, you know, is a fantastic discovery, but it almost did a disservice in a way, uh, you know, in terms of PR, because it gives people the impression that my job as a particle physicist is to discover new particles. And that's not my job. My job, in fact, is to rule out all the possible places in the data where new particles could be hiding. And that's a very subtle shift, but it's a super important one to, to keep in mind. So we are doing our job. And this is the absolute, like, you know, the, it, the, the LEC has been an absolute phenomenal success in all respects. Um, it has been working swimmingly. It, it, it collides protons at the highest energy we've ever used, as you mentioned. Um, it, it has withstood all of our, uh, you know, all, all of our, like, kind of uh, attempts to push it to its limits. We're, we're, we're uh, gearing up for these so-called upgrade periods uh, where we're going to super it up even more. We're going to crank up the juice in terms of frequency of collisions. We're going to just increase our uh, discovery potential, uh, the potential for discovering new particles by orders of magnitude. It's a phenomenal, colossal success. And so you're absolutely right that it is. It kind of breaks the brain a little bit when you're a working particle physicist and you, you know, you're doing this research, fundamental research all the time, huge success, publishing papers, ruling out where particles could be hiding. And you see an article where it's like, why hasn't the LHC found anything anymore yet? And you're like, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's, that's I think, a, a real big point. And I think what you bring up is something that I, I got to appreciate years ago because uh, my, my very first job was working at Fermilab back in 1997 uh, on experimental particle physics. And as I, as I went to grad school and, you know, went and made my career, I, I went into theory instead of experiment. And wow, being a theorist and being an experimentalist are two incredibly different things. And I think that there's often this problem that theorists want to tell experimentalists what to go and look for, and experimentalists want to go and look for everything they can possibly look for, whether it's well-motivated by a particular theorist's theory or whether it's just a general search that's completely independent about whatever theorists are theorizing. And with the LHC, it's sort of been this interesting thing because a lot of theorists were hoping for supersymmetry or were hoping for low energy extra dimensions or were hoping for, you know, certain scenarios where you would see new physics appear right away. At the same time, theorists had done very careful calculations based on what we had known and observed about standard models, particles, and their collisions and their properties for, you know, many decades and said, actually, we have this relatively narrow window between about, I think it was between about 115 and maybe 160 GeV. And they were like, unless something's really wrong with physics, that's where we're going to find the Higgs. And right. I agree with you. It's, it's really remarkable that within just a few years of turning on the LHC, in fact, both of the major collaborations at the LHC, the CMS collaboration and the 
Atlas collaboration that you're a part of, they both found five sigma evidence for the Higgs being at the same energy, about 125, 126 GeV as each other, and they did it so quickly. In some ways, I feel like the LHC is not only a victim of its own success, it's sort of a victim of, well, to take that next step. We have to push the frontiers. We don't know what the answer is going to be, but that means going to higher energies, going to greater numbers of collisions. And for people who think that the LHC is done, the most important fact that I want to give to them is over its planned lifetime, which should take it from about a decade ago to about, you know, maybe maybe 15 to 20 years from now, the LHC to date has only taken about 2% of the total amount of data it will ever take. The Correct. upgrades are just that good. Correct. Yeah. No, it's a it's a vital point. And again, it's one of those things that just like you pointed out, you know, that it, it's it's Sometimes it's hard for people to kind of, you know, get a good leg in, leg up on what exactly it is that we do. And so you're absolutely right that that's one of the key things, right? We we have only taken a tiny fraction of the total data that we're going to find. So we do find ourselves in this kind of strange position right now where when you talk to somebody that's, you know, outside of the field or in a related field and they read one of these bizarro articles and you end up having to be a little bit defensive at first and you're like, well, okay, but that article completely, you know, mis misinterprets or mischaracterizes what experimental science is. Um, a couple of points, though. The, so you mentioned that there's, you know, there is or has been this kind of uh, traditional separation between theorists and experiment, uh, experimentalists in particle physics. And it is true to a certain extent. Um, it's, it's, in the past, it's kind of been a healthy one. And that's another component of why I think that the LHC is in such an interesting and intriguing moment uh, uh, right now, is that, the, you know, it's not it's not so much a victim of its own success in terms of the very quick discovery of the Higgs boson, but it's also uh, particle physics in general. Physics in general is kind of a victim of the overwhelming accidental success of the 20th century. Let's be honest, because if we go back to like the you know the 1850s and the 1880s, right? You basically back at the time, people were like, oh, okay, well, we basically understand everything about physics. You know, there's uh, you know electricity and magnetism were thought to be two different things, and it turns out they're two parts of the same force, electromagnetism. But then you got to the point where it was uh, I forget who it was, uh, some some famous physicist gave uh, uh, gave a talk on the steps of uh, some building at the University of Chicago in like 18, I forget what it was, the 1890s, right? And he said these famous words, he said, basically everything about physics has been discovered and the rest of it from here on out is just minutia or just kind of details, <laughs> which I, and I'm not entirely sure if people say things like this in their, you know, ever in their life, especially re referring to science, scientific things, just because they think that, you know, they, maybe they want to sound like a weird joke or a punchline in the future. But that was right, you know, you flash forward to even 1905 when Einstein put, put, put out his three papers that completely revolutionized uh, all of our understanding of, uh, of nature at its smallest and fastest possible scales with special relativity and Brownian motion. But then 1915, when suddenly you have you know, a general relativity, which is another complete game changer in terms of uh, our attitude toward basic physics, and then the development of quantum mechanics, which was, uh, which was uh, uh, put together by mo multiple people in the 20s and 30s and moving forward. And then eventually you put these things together and you get quantum field theory. 
And but the entire history of the 20th century was more or less this wonderful interplay between theory and experiment. And you had theory, which would you know, theorists that would see, look at the observations being made, and then they would put two and two together, and they, whoa, if you th that that says that if you do X Y Z, you should see PQR. And the experimenters would go, wait, is that true? Then they go out and pow, there there's the answer. It's right there where you kind of expect it to. And this kept happening over and over, almost like clockwork. Every every decade or generation, there would be some fundamental discovery that was uh, that was predicted and then made. You know, and some of the, and that's what the standard model. Uh, that's why we call it this thing, the capital S, capital M, and why it deserves this name. It's it's one of the most. It's arguably the most successful intellectual achievement of humankind because it's basically you start down with some you start with some more or less straightforward uh, mathematics, um, uh, you know, group theory, uh, uh, differential equations, and you turn the crank. And what it does is it spits out exactly what you should see in particle physics collider experiments if you're to perform them. And some of the predictions are so straightforward that it's it almost boggles the mind. They're so precise and straightforward that it almost boggles the mind. Like the discover uh, the the prediction that there should be these extra force carrying particles of something called the weak force, the W and the Z bosons. And they said, yeah, and these should the, the theory if this is right, it, they should be just around the corner in the kind of range of tens of GeV. And the experimentalists are like that's crazy. How is that even possible? And then we went out, and there they were. So it's just it, it, you know by, like like clockwork, this kept happening because the standard model was a very kind of uh, coherent and somewhat closed framework to describe three of the known forces of nature. And then the last remaining piece to put into this thing, as you pointed out, is the Higgs boson, right? And the Higgs boson was the last remaining piece of the standard model that had yet to be discovered. And it was predicted way back in the 60s, right? And the, but the you know, so you might think that, okay, that's an anomaly to what I'm saying. But in the 60s, the, it, was, it was predicted, but it was also, it was totally weird in terms of all the other particles that we know. The Higgs boson is totally bizarre and totally weird compared to every other particle that we know of. Um, and in the standard model, it's totally weird because standard model predicts its existence, but it does not say where it is. And this is related to what you mentioned about how, you know, before the LHC turned on, we kind of had a range of sort of theoretically well-motivated places where the Higgs boson should live. Honestly, there's a more complicated discussion behind that because from uh, kind of even more, uh, those are very model-dependent statements in terms of theory and particular theorists, if you want to talk to, in a more kind of fundamental way. The, one of the weirdest things about the Higgs boson is the fact that we even found it at the LHC at all. In fact, there's really nothing in our theories to prevent the Higgs boson mass from being something gigantically high. And so that's a you know that's a that's a bit of a different discussion. But you know just to to finish the thought is the fact that the Higgs boson was predicted, but its mass was not. And that's the thing that was made it so difficult to find. And there's this famous paper from the from the 70s, I think, uh, by John Ellis and a few other people who are talking about the phenomenology of the Higgs boson. And they say at the very end, they say, we should end this paper with perhaps an apology and a caution to experimentalists. We apologize for not knowing what the mass of the Higgs, we're having no idea what the mass of the Higgs boson is. Um, and for this reason, uh, we don't want to, but we don't want to encourage any large experimental uh, projects to look for it, but you should be aware that it could show up in your data somewhere. <laughs> and so then, of course, one of the reasons why that one of the main motivating factors for the Large Hadron Collider was that once we got through the 80s with LEP and everything, there's kind of like there was hints that the Higgs boson should have been just around the corner at the next machine, and there it was. So that's the that's the you know the the, the more kind of fundamental story of the Higgs boson is that it was the last remaining piece 
to be plugged in the standard model. And after that piece was plugged in, we basically ran out in particle physics. We ran out of guaranteed discoveries. We ran out of of uh, more or less no lose theorems in a way. However, we're still left with huge unopened, uh, unanswered questions that are some of the biggest open questions of physics. What is dark matter? Why is the universe made of matter and not antimatter? Why do neutrinos have masses? What are those masses? Uh, how does gravity fit in with all the other forces of nature? So we have the, the Higgs boson discovery only answered one of the dozens of huge and unanswered questions in physics and it raised a bunch of other ones so the you know that that's why the higgs is such a such a strange discovery and and why you know the notion of the lhc being a victim of its own success is yeah i, I can understand how that impression could be gotten but in terms of the working experimentalists that's garbage Right. And I think this is this is really important because you brought up something uh, when you were talking about the John Ellis paper that I thought was was pretty fascinating is it isn't just, oh, you have theorists on one hand and experimentalists on other hand. You have uh, what I would call the bridge between theory and experiment in terms of having phenomenologists, which are saying like, okay, yes. if I take these theories that have been developed and I want to say – based on these theories, what could be the experimental consequences? What should experiments go out and look for? What should they what should they tune themselves for? Where should they look? What is what are interesting things to measure to check these theories? Um, and if you can get this number of collisions at this energy, what will it teach you? Right? You have this whole new field, relatively new field called phenomenology which sort of straddles this boundary of theory and experiment where it will take a theory and say, this is the experimental signature you should find if this is correct. And it can also take the experimental data and say, these are the constraints that it puts on these theories. So you mentioned, and this is, I think, hugely important, that yes, we have the standard model and the standard model is amazing for describing three of the four fundamental forces, the strong and weak nuclear forces and the electromagnetic force. And it does a remarkable job. We have never seen an interaction in a particle collider. As far as we know, that cannot be explained by the standard model. But on Correct. the other hand, we have all of these hints from the universe. We have various experiments that give results that don't fully agree with the standard model. We call these anomalies, and some examples are uh, the muon G-2 anomaly is one such anomaly. We have the Atomki anomaly, where we say, okay, well, um, you know, when you have a particle like beryllium-8 in an excited state and it emits a photon, that photon should decay to electron-positron pairs – and those electron-positron pairs should display a particular pattern in the angle that they can have between them. And we see a surprise at about 140 degrees of what we call an opening angle between them that where we expect the, you know, as the opening angle increases or decreases, we expect it to follow a particular pattern. We expect there to be a decrease. And yet somehow at 140 degrees, there's an increase. And this is like a 6.8 sigma results. So that's that's beyond the threshold that we normally think of as, hmm, that's that's really the gold standard. So right. when you consider that, yes, we, we see neutrino oscillations and we only know how to explain that if neutrinos have mass, but why are their masses 4 million times smaller than the mass of the electron at right. most? Right. Um, why do the particles 
that we know of, why do they have the mass values that they have? These are not predictions of the standard models. These are just values we have to put in by hand. So when you talk about the mass of the Higgs, we don't know what the self-coupling of the Higgs is, and yet that is the thing that determines what the mass of the Higgs is going to be. So we have to measure it and we have to infer it. And so it's sort of this, you know, I look at it as, you know, imagine that you're an archaeologist, right? And you have this old, beautiful painted mug and you, you wrap it up in a towel and you smash it to bits and you take five of the bits and you bury them in the ground and you take all the other bits and you hide them away. <laughs> Particle physics is like going and digging up those five bits that still exist and saying, you know, there must have been a vase here. And <laughs> by doing these experiments, you can reconstruct what was the shape of the vase and how much did it hold. But then you start asking questions like, did this vase have handles? What was the base of this vase like? How big was it? How much liquid could it hold? You're not going to know those answers based on the tiny little bits that you recover. You have to go and push the frontiers to try and find it. And I feel like in a very real way, without a certain surefire slam dunk theory to guide it, that's why experimental physicists do what they do and why you need the most powerful tool you can get to do this job. Yeah. No, I absolutely agree. And I think that's a good metaphor. That's very good. I, you know, I, I like the metaphor and I also like the kind of message that you're saying too, because it's totally in accord with the way that we, uh, that we, that we view experimental particle physics these days, because, you know, kind of the way you're intimating is that, is that, you know, we definitely would love some theoretical guidance, some, some, I call it kind of old school theoretical guidance, these sort of like, you know, very bright flat flashlights pointing towards some discovery. It's like, you should look over there and there could be a discovery there, you know, and because this has always happened in the past, but we're kind of out of those for a lot of reasons. You know, for example, one of the biggest paradigms as to what dark matter could be, right? As you know, dark matter, uh, we, we know that there's more stuff in the, in the universe than just the kind of matter that we can see with our eyes. You know, for, you know, if you take your favorite Hubble, Hubble photograph of a spiral galaxy, right? You count up all the stuff you can see, all the stars and gas. This gives you a really good estimate of the amount of matter that's in that, that galaxy. But then, And then you could just take your favorite textbook on, on gravity and put that amount of matter in the equation that tells you how fast a star should be moving, rotating, as a function of how far away from the center it is. And it's just a prediction. It's a straightforward calculation. Then, of course, as you know, we measure these galaxies, and they're spinning way faster than they should. So either one or two things is wrong. Either our understanding of gravity is wrong, and it's probably not, or there's got to be more stuff there than what we can see with our eyes. And if it's not light, then it's dark, and that's hence dark matter. And it's not just one galaxy, it's all of them. So we know that there's way more dark matter in the universe than there is us. I mean, each person listening to this right now probably has about a billion particles of dark matter coursing through their body every second, and they always have. But... That is all under the – everything that I said is under the assumption that dark matter is some kind of particle. It is some kind of thing that we expect to be sort of in a certain type of mass range and that you know it should have a certain type of coupling to you know the standard model in some weird way that we haven't discovered yet. And this is you – know, this is, as you know, it's been referred to as the WIMP paradigm, weakly interactive massive particle. And it was kind of once again one of these sort of hints based upon a weird coincidence in terms of if you, have, if you just postulate – that there's maybe some new force carrier that's around the so-called weak scale, which is the you know within the range of the Large Hadron Collider and other experiments, then it 
automatically gives you the amount of dark matter that we see in the universe today. And so that's a very good hint, and we should always you know, follow hints like that. But the way it stands right now, all of the different ways we look for dark matter in the, in the experimental communities right now, they're all coming up empty in terms of WIMP dark matter. So, of course, that makes us start thinking about other paradigms of dark matter, other things that could be out there. And this is just one example of so many things, so many, so many possible big you know, discoveries that could be made that are not panning out in the same sort of uh, magic bullet, you should look over there style way. And so we want more of those for sure. And, and again, I, I am absolutely 100%, 1000%, if that's even possible for a physicist to say that with a straight face, 1000% uh, in favor of all of my theorist colleagues coming up with the new ideas for the future, new things we haven't thought about. I, uh, these are great. We need all of these. By the same token, the future of particle physics is experimental because we have big open questions and we don't have guaranteed discoveries anymore. And that's not that's that's not scary to me. That's, that's exciting. That's fantastic because experimentalists, as experimentals we can just we need to cast as wide a net as possible go up to the highest possible energies possible just because there could be discoveries there it's always worked in the past and we we need to go as high as possible to hope to see something new however one thing that's really important to keep in mind with the large hadron collider is that we are just kind of right now as we talked about earlier we have only taken about two percent of the total data we're going to take and so it's it's not only just not not only bizarre and irrelevant to say that the Large Hadron Collider has been you know is in crisis or quote as, is a failure or something like that. It's not even that's not just bizarre and irrelevant. It's totally completely premature from an ob objective factual perspective, <laughs> because the two places that new the, the the two ways basically the two ways that the Large Hadron Collider can come up with new physics, new particles that could help explain some of these biggest open questions of uh, of physics are either in this so-called high mass regime regime, this high energy regime, or in large statistics, like in a kind of small uh, uh, tails of distributions. And the high energy one, of course, comes from Einstein, as you know, you know, the whole point of a big collider, you might ask the question, somebody might be asking the question in the audience, wait, why do they need these big machines to begin with? So let's take back a step, uh, step back a step. Um, the largeness of these machines that we build, you know, 27 kilometers circular tunnel, the next generation is planned to be something like 100 kilometers around the previous generation to, to the, the Large Hadron Collider were things around, you know, a few kilometers around, things like that. The largeness of these experiments is related to uh, the fact that when you have a larger experiment, you can get the particles up to higher energies. You get them to higher speeds and therefore higher uh, kinetic energies. And that allows you to then smash them together at higher and higher uh, energies, you know, center of mass energies. And the reason that's important is because of Einstein, his famous equation, which, you know, E equals MC squared. And what that says is that there's an equivalence at the particle level between energy and mass. And as you pointed out, mass is just a number put there by nature. We don't choose what the mass of the Higgs boson is. We don't choose what the mass of the electron is. We just go out and measure it. And so, one, and so then if but the thing we can control, if we're clever enough as a species, is the E side. And if... It, and so if nature has a particle with a mass M that's way up in the sky, um, I'm holding my my hand up in the sky right now, and we as humans have only ever built a collider with E that goes up to, a, you know, the, to about my about my belly button, we're never going to discover that particle and, and, and be able to measure its properties. So that's why we had to go to bigger machines, bigger energies to hopefully, you know, to even have a chance to discover these particles with masses M that nature could have put there just waiting for us. Right. And that's not only, I think, brilliant, but that's not even the only benefit you get from going to higher energies like that. Because in quantum mechanics, uh, energy 
for a particle, right? Particles are also waves. And so if you go to higher energies, that's also the same as going to shorter wavelengths for your particles. Shorter wavelengths mean higher energy. So it was only, for example, when accelerators got to high enough energies that we could literally crack a proton or a neutron open that we were able to discover what was inside of it. You know, you you talked about the 20th century as being this incredible, successful partnership between theory and experiment. And that is wonderful, I think, from a 21st century perspective. Of course it is. <laughs> but what we don't talk about in the 21st century is all the theories that came out that were brilliant and clever and made predictions that were wrong, that weren't borne out by nature. Everyone talks about the quark model for how successful it is because it does because it describes what's going on inside protons, neutrons, baryons, and mesons. But nobody talks about the Sakata model anymore, <laughs> even though that was a brilliant possible explanation of how you could create pions and the mesons from just having protons, neutrons, antiprotons, and antineutrons binding together in specific ways. In fact, if you go back to this old Sakata model and you say, hmm, what would it predict if we took took what we know now about quarks and applied it, you'd get the same answer for the quark content of the pions as you do in the quark model. It's just that, yeah, as it turned out, we needed to go to those high energies. We needed to do that deep inelastic scattering and find out, oh, there are point particles inside. I know there are theories now, even though they're maybe not in the mainstream, that quarks or gluons or electrons or what have you are not truly fundamental particles. But we won't ever know that unless we go to these high energies, these energies we haven't reached before. Right now, we say these particles are fundamental down to a distance scale of about 10 to the minus 18 or 10 to the minus 19 meters. Correct. But if we go to higher energies, we might find out these are composite particles after all. Because Unless we look and see what do our statistics say, what does the indirect evidence say, what does the direct evidence say, unless we add that all together, I feel like we're doing ourselves a disservice by not probing the frontier of physics to the fullest extent that we could possibly probe it. Oh, absolutely. And that's that's one of the most important uh, uh, ways that, that's the most important way to think about the type of physics that I do, the particle physics, you know, collider physics that I do. It's, you can think of it, you know, as this necessary frontier, right? It's, it really is, is you know, because that's what particle physics is, let's be honest. It's the very frontiers of knowledge. It's the very edge of our knowledge. Just like you pointed out, with our current experiments, we can get up to, be, we can be able to see things that are about 10 to the minus 18 meters. And that's really, you know, if, 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 what, if what I do here at, at CERN, if what my, and my colleagues do here at CERN ever seems a little bit you know, kind of weird or arcane to people because it's, you know, quantum field theory and Feynman diagrams, and blah, blah, blah. It's, it's not really that complicated because really all we're asking here is a very basic fundamental question, something you would think about when you're a little kid. How small can I cut anything? Right. So, you, you know, you, you know that if you start with like a loaf of bread and cut it in half and keep going, you get a crumb and you go to molecule. Can I cut a molecule? Of course, I can separate into atoms. Can I cut an atom? Yes. Nucleus with some electrons floating around. Can I cut an electron? 
as you pointed out, based upon our theory, as it stands now, the, the best theory, it should actually be a point particle. We, we make the assumption that an electron is a zero volume chunk of, of energy and momentum floating throughout space, right? However, that is based upon our theoretical understanding of it being a fundamental particle. As you pointed out, we currently can only – the, the, the ability to say that an electron is a point particle is really only based upon our fact that we can currently see something that's down to about 10 to the minus 18 meters. It's entirely possible the substructure down there. And so – it behooves us. It's not even. It doesn't behoove us. It nece it's necessary for us as a species to look as small as we can possible go, possibly go. And as you pointed out, that's impossible unless we go to larger energy machines because of this relationship between uh, between high energy and distance scale as well. So I absolutely agree with you. And it's it's I, I kind of think of it in a way. So that's why it's really fascinating also to to uh, to hear or kind of like you know just in passing hear some of these uh, discussions that go on amongst people that are not really even necessarily in the particle physics field about, you know, oh, do we really need to go to a bigger machine? And oh, is it really justified? It's like, I, I don't understand the, the, the basis upon which people are asking that question. It's absolutely necessary for us as a species to look as small as we possibly can, because there could be discoveries waiting there. It's the kind of same thing that I, I think of it as similar, uh, you know, similar, if not identical to the notion of when the astrophysics community, you know, the, the, uh, the astronomy community is proposing a 30 meter telescope, right? You don't have to say, oh, we want to build a 30 meter telescope because I want to see one particular type of uh, uh, bizarro kind of dark star that might exist only, you know, in a certain part of the space. No, what you do is you say, we need this telescope to see things in space that we currently can't see period. And you just stop talking because people understand that. It's the exploratory mindset. It's the same thing with particle physics. We have a fantastic machine right now that we will be squeezing to its Poss you know, it's it's farthest possible limits for the next 10, 15, 20 years in terms of building up huge amount of statistics, looking for these particles that may only show up in the tails of distributions, tiny, tiny little bumps that are extremely rare. Of course, we're going to go through with that process. But to go to to see smaller, to to go to we have to go to higher energies, and so it's it's not even an option really. I mean, our species, if we want to keep exploring, we have to build bigger machines. Full stop. I mean, I, I agree with that completely. You know, if I think I think you you really summed it up really well. I think I if I wanted to explain experimental particle physics to someone who had no idea what it was, I could I could get it down to four words. I think I could just say smashy smashy looky looky. That that's what you do <laughs> is you you take these things and you smash them as hard as you can, as many times as you can, and you look with the best precision you can at what comes out. And that's that's how you do it. In terms of an accelerator, because of the way the laws of physics works, there were really only two things that determine how hard you can smash them together. One is how big of a ring you're willing to build, and two is how strong of a magnet you can install to bend your particles into a circle. As long as you're not, you know, limited by other things like the synchrotron radiation of an electron, uh, which you aren't with protons, you can go up to as high of an energy as you want by building a bigger collider or putting in a stronger magnetic field. So when we talk about the upgrades to the LHC, we're, we're stuck in this same 27 kilometer ring, but people are 
putting in stronger, better focusing magnets. And people are saying, well, we have this many particles in each little bunch that we collide together now, but we can get that up to an even higher number. And so that's why when we're looking at the next 15 years of the LHC, uh, when we do runs three, four, and five versus runs one and two, which we've already done, we're going to get 50 times more data at a slightly higher energy than we've gotten for the first two runs combined. And that's really impressive to me. But it also makes me think of what I consider as, you know, it was taught to me as the nightmare scenario. And although personally for me, the nightmare scenario, the real nightmare is we don't look. Right? There were a lot of people, to go back to your astronomy analogy, who said this Hubble Deep Field plan, the original Hubble Deep Field plan, oh, like you're just going to waste days and days of telescope time by looking at the same blank patch of sky, and you're probably not even going to find anything. You're just going to take astronomy time away from people who want to do legitimate science. And of course, Oops. they... They wound up doing it. They pointed at this blank patch of sky where there was really nothing there. I think there were a total of maybe six faint stars and zero known galaxies. Right. And after a, you know, a, I think it was like a multi hundred hour um, observation, they came back and bam, there are thousands of galaxies at all Wait. sorts of different distances that were just simply too faint to see with a short period observation. And I worry about what if there isn't anything there? Is it justified to find out that, you know, many theories like the standard model alone says, yeah, you're not going to see anything until, you know, at least, you know, 7 to 11 orders of magnitude higher in energy than the LHC. Now, now no one is realistically proposing building a a particle collider the size of Earth's orbit or the size of the solar <laughs> system, people are really looking at, you know, okay, can we go up to like something maybe seven to 10 times as large as the LHC ring? Or can we go up to a 100 kilometer ring from a 27 kilometer ring? And can we put stronger magnets in there? And I think that's probably more reasonable from a practical perspective. But let me ask you, Envisioning the worst case scenario, envisioning this nightmare scenario of there is nothing new that a next generation collider like the kind that are being proposed right now will find, is it still worth it to build it, to look, to rule out what we can rule out and to know what we can learn even if there is nothing out there? The answer to your question is very simple and very short. Absolutely yes, so we, you know, and, and the reason why is that it comes down to, you know, the most important one is it comes down to the thing we've been talking about, where if you don't look, you'll never know. If we as a species don't look at higher energies, if we don't build bigger colliders, we'll never know what's out there. And, you know, I honestly, I, I hate to pull a, a, I hate to pull a kind of linguistic trick, but if you knew what you're going to get in advance, it wouldn't be called an experiment. 
So that's really what we have to do. That's really the, the best way to think about uh, the next generation of particle physics experiment. It's it's a it's a, a, a if if the LHC was kind of a moonshot in the sense that we sort of knew that the moon was there and we wanted to go and fl- and land on it before the LHC turned on, we had a, had a pretty good hint that the Higgs was around the corner, whatever around the corner meant, but well within the range of the Large Hadron Collider. Then the next generation of particle physics experiment is just a is is a shot into the into the unknown. It's like let's go as far as we possibly can to see what's out there. And so that's really the biggest uh, justification for for the next generation of collider. You know, when you say is it worth it, it's absolutely worth it because if we don't look, we'll never know what's there. Um, there's also other, there, you know, if you want to get a little bit more kind of brass tacks and a couple of, you know, kind of standard motivations, there are great motivations to, you know, to go to higher energies. And they're not just great. They're, again, completely fundamental. One of the ones has to do, one of the biggest ones that people talk about is the Higgs boson itself. The Higgs boson, as I pointed out, is a totally weird and totally bizarre particle, unlike any other particles that we know about, because it is... The boson part itself, the particle thing, is super fascinating. But honestly, it's the not the most important thing about the Higgs boson discovery. It's not the particle itself. the The Higgs boson discovery, the most important thing about it is the fact that it demonstrates conclusively that there is at least one so-called scalar field in the universe, a fundamental scalar field, and it's more or less an invisible jelly that permeates all of space everywhere. And it's the thing that allows certain types of fundamental particles to actually have masses uh and so if that you know as you know the standard analogies right if you're a particle if i'm a particle and i'm i'm zooming around the universe if i have a mass it means that i'm dragged by this higgs jelly just a little bit and it dra- and a little bit of my energy is stuck into a point that i measure as a mass and if I'm, I'm a photon for example i don't have any mass and therefore i just zoom through this unimpeded and so this is you know the fact that the scalar field is there is totally fascinating but all of the properties of what the boson part is, the particle, and also the field itself, we don't, we will never be able to know these properties with a large pre- precision at the LHC at all. So we're, you know, we're we're going to be taking, like you said, fifty times the data that we currently have. Even if, even to uh, after all of that data, we will not be able to learn everything about the Higgs boson that we need to learn down to the precision that we need to rule out that the Higgs boson itself could actually have stuff, uh, you know, coupling. And and uh, and and so-called por- uh, portals to possible new physics in there. So one of the things that you know, and I, and I'm not really you know, it's 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 not an understatement to say this. The Higgs boson could be our best window or portal into new physics. The, you know, the the Higgs boson is very strange for a lot of reasons. It has this extremely narrow width, so-called width. The the, the the decay width of this particle. And so if there are new particles that actually are beyond the standard model that are extra, you know, particles to extend the standard model, it's entirely possible that the best way for us to access them is through the Higgs boson. So for example, one of the things that we look for at the LHC is all the different types of decay modes of the Higgs boson. As you know, when we collide protons and we coax a Higgs boson into existence in the middle of our detector, Atlas or CMS, it lives for something like 10 to the minus 23 seconds and then it decays. And so even though the mass of the Higgs boson was not predicted by the standard model, if once you know its mass, you basically know everything else about it according to the standard model, including the percentage of the time that it will decay into certain types of particles versus other types of particles. Thus, that's all predicted. And you, that means it makes a, whole, a huge number of precise predictions that we can go out and measure. And with the Large Hadron Collider, we'll never have enough Higgs bosons at, over its entire run to be able to measure these things with precision. And there could be extra stuff 
extra particles, these things that are theorized that could really only talk to or, or, or interact with our standard model through the Higgs boson. So when you ask, do we really need a next generation of collider physics experiment? <laughs> My answer is, number one, absolutely, because if we don't look at higher energies, we'll never know what's there. And number two, yes, absolutely, because if we don't, we'll never understand the Higgs boson with the precision that we need to understand both it itself, whether it talks to dark matter sectors, whether, and also whether what it's whether the shape of the Higgs boson potential implies that trillions of years from now our universe may just spontaneously cease to exist because the Higgs boson vacuum tunnels into from a false vacuum into a true vacuum and everything disappears immediately. <laughs> so from a purely existential perspective, I think we have to build the next generation of collider. Yeah, I. I agree with that, and I think that if we are if we are getting into some of the details, uh, I think it's important to go back in time just a little bit to before the discovery of the Higgs, and remember that there were some big questions that we assumed we knew the answer to because we assumed that the standard model would be exactly correct in its predictions of the Higgs boson, but there were a lot of things we didn't know. For example, the Higgs is predicted to be a scalar particle, which means in terms of the intrinsic spin or intrinsic angular momentum that it has, it has none. It has zero intrinsic angular momentum. And none of the fundamental particles we had ever discovered had that property. We had fermions, which could be spin plus or minus a half, and we had the photon and the gluon, which were spin one massless particles. We had the W and Z bosons, which were spin one vector bosons. But the Higgs was predicted to be spin zero. And it wasn't until we not only created it, but created it and saw, oh, it can either decay into two spin one particles, which means it could either be spin two or spin zero because one plus one is two and one minus one is zero. Or then we saw, oh, actually it can decay into two spin one half particles, which tells you, well, either the two one halves can add and you get one or the two one halves can subtract and you get zero. And only by seeing both of those types of decays can you say, aha, it has to be one or it has to be one or zero from the one half decays, and it has to be two or zero from the spin one decays. And then you see, aha, therefore it has to be spin zero. It was only by measuring these multiple decay modes that we could tell, oh yes, in fact, this is how the Higgs works. Now, when you talk about measuring the specific fraction of decays that go into one mode versus another, right? We call these branching ratios in particle physics. And branching ratios are fascinating because, again, based on these different particles we know of in the standard model, we make explicit predictions for, oh, they should couple to the Higgs like this, and we should see this branching ratio to this precision. And so, with the LHC, we're limited in some of those precisions we can measure. And in addition, we can't go the other way. We can't say, oh, if I collide uh, a W boson and a Z boson together with this exact energy, I have this percent chance of producing, for instance, a Higgs and a photon. And maybe you can do that. There are all these different channels that are the reverse 
of the Higgs decay branching ratios where you can actually create a Higgs by either colliding two particles or a particle-antiparticle pair together and saying, how do I make this Higgs? And that's something we can do at a lepton collider, at an E plus E minus collider, either linear or circular, for the next generation is we could just tune our electrons and positrons to that right center of mass energy and then hope to produce Higgs bosons or Higgs bosons and other things through that E equals MC squared process you talked about earlier. So I do, I really do see if we want precision studies of the Higgs, we need a next generation collider, we need it to be an E plus E minus collider, and then I start thinking, you know, if you do that, you can also start producing W's and Z's and top quarks with precisions that we've never created before also. Correct. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the biggest arguments for this, uh, like you mentioned, these so-called E plus E minus machines, which is planned to be at least one of the one of the next generation machines will likely be an E plus E minus machine, um, as you pointed out. And it is. It's for exactly those reasons, you know, because E plus E minus. I think of it sort of as though a hadron collider, you know, uh, it, hadron collider because protons are you know big beasts with you know substructure down uh, inside them. Um, I think of a hadron collider as like a hammer right and i think of an e plus e minus machine as like a tweezers right so if somebody says to you it's like hey i think i suspect that there's a higgs boson that lives behind this wall like you're in a you know you're in a warehouse and they say there's a higgs boson that lives behind that wall you're not going to start with the tweezers and start you know picking through the wall to see every single you know every single square uh, millimeter where if there's a higgs boson behind there it's like a gigantic hammer you know like a cartoon hammer and start smashing the wall and once you get to a point you, it, suddenly some higgs bosons start spilling out of the wall you're like aha i see that now and so then to really understand what's coming out from those higgs bosons you then take the tweezers and you get up really really close and then you start doing some precision measurements because as you intimated the e plus e minus machine allows us to do that because there's the, there are these point particles the collisions they produce are are very clean compared to big messy hadronic uh, collisions and you can you can tune an e plus e minus machine uh, right to produce a large number of higgs bosons that are then their decays are accessible to us in in both the you know the decay way uh, that you're pointing out and then again the thing you pointed out that's very fascinating is that there are certain things about the higgs that we will never be able to understand from its decays only and these are these so-called you know some of the couplings to some of the standard model particles themselves that again we just have to measure if 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 we don't go to uh, next generation machines, we're leaving the job undone. And no physicist worth their salt would leave, leave a job undone. So for example, one thing that we're learning right now at the the, at the Large Hadron Collider is, uh, we, you know, we both Atlas and CMS recently, I guess in the last year or so, or, you know, last two years, we announced that we see five sigma uh, evidence for the production of Higgs bosons, where the Higgs boson is produced through two top quarks, right? And that's great, right? Be but it also it makes you think, well, wait a minute, why don't we just look for the Higgs boson decaying to top quarks? That allows us to look for that particular, you know, that coupling as well, the Higgs to the top quarks. It's because the Higgs, uh, the Higgs boson is less massive than the top quark. The top quark is a huge, massive beast, and we can't produce, uh, the Higgs itself can't decay to two top, top quarks on shell. So we have to look both directions, right? We have to be able to 
to control everything about the production mode of the Higgs and also the decay mode of the Higgs and make sure that all these pieces work together exactly as expected in the standard model. Otherwise, we can't trust that what we have is the Higgs boson from the standard model, or if it's a Higgs boson that could in fact be a, a part of a family of other as you pointed out, spin zero particles, scalar evidence of other scalar fundamental scalar fields uh, fields in nature. So this is this is absolutely necessary, and it's something we can't possibly do with our current machines. So the notion of a justification for the next generation machine, uh, next generation of machines, is they're 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 myriad, and and one of the biggest ones comes from the Higgs boson itself. Another fascinating thing, just as an add-on to that, is you know, with an E plus E minus machine, that would be something that you in principle would, it would be fascinating to, uh, to, you know, it's something that we've discussed as kind of an add-on for a possible, you know, say this FCC, the future circular collider at, at CERN could be a hundred kilometers around starting with an E plus E minus uh, collision, uh, you know, electron positron collisions, eventually moving to hadronic collisions as well. If you were able to take a few years of running or a, few, a certain amount of time at running just with, tuning that energy of this e plus e minus circular machine just where you could produce higgs's like right right uh, direct producing them you might be able to actually see the higgs coupling to e electrons themselves electron and positron themselves when that when they start uh, when it decays to e plus e minus which is basically impossible to see at the large hadron collider because it's such a small branching ratio the you know as you know the higgs boson since it's responsible uh for, since it demonstrates that the higgs field exists and the higgs field is the thing that gives particles their masses and the electron mass is hugely small compared to say w and z bosons and other things that we can we that have a, you know that are coupled to the higgs very strongly we don't actually ever hope to see the, elect the, the Higgs decaying to electron positron at the, the Large Hadron Collider. There's no way you could possibly see it. However, if you were to tune a larger energy machine, or sorry, a bigger machine at E plus E minus just to produce that, you actually could measure that one as well. And so it's just an example of how the field, are, again, my job as a particle physicist is not to discover new particles. My, jo my job is to rule out all the possible places in the data where a new discovery could be hiding. And that takes a slightly different mindset than, oh, look, you found the Higgs. What have you done for me lately? <laughs> I've published hundreds of papers that uh, demonstrate where we, where we looked for new physics and we did not find them. And that those, every single one of those papers is a huge success. I'm one of these people that thinks that you know, we should have a breathless uh, you know, press uh, press release and huge, uh, you know, kind of like celebratory champagne, uh, popular science articles. Every time we publish a paper at the LHC that says that we have ruled out a part of the parameter space where, you know, supersymmetry, gluinos, squarks, uh, or, you know, or stop quarks or, or, uh, or, or dark matter candidates or dark matter force carriers could do not live. I think we should have, I think we should have, these are hugely celebratory moments. So every time that we make a big discovery in astronomy where we'll measure something closer to a black hole than we've ever measured it before or that we've measured it, you know, at closer to the speed of light or in a stronger gravitational field or in a regime where we've never measured it before and we'll say, okay, this was a new test of general relativity and guess what? Einstein wins again. I feel like maybe you should be doing the same thing in particle physics except it's the standard model wins again, which yep. is – frustrating in a lot of ways because <laughs> you and I both know that both general relativity and the standard model, they can't be the final answer. They're they're mutually incompatible. They don't account for all the mysteries that we know have to have solutions like why there's more matter than antimatter. The standard model won't get you there or 
how, what happens, what happens to the gravitational field of an electron when you pass it through a double slit. That's not something general relativity can explain, and that's not something the standard model can explain. You just, you know there has to be something more out there. I feel like the biggest danger, the biggest danger of all is assuming that the theories we have today, the standard model, general relativity, are good and valid in regimes where we've never tested it, where we've never probed it, where we've never done the critical measurement or observation or experiment. Because I feel like once you convince yourself that you know the answer to an experiment that you haven't yet performed, and therefore you decide you don't need to perform it, that is the moment that you have chosen to give up on science. Yes, you've capitulated, basically. You've given up when you say such things. And it's, it, to me, it's even more fundamentally, profoundly weird in a way to, 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 you know, to talk about the future of particle physics in that, in that, you know, in that, in that uh, capacity. Because it's, it's not just a, a weird thing about, you know, like a misunderstanding of physics. It's a bizarre mischaracterization of science itself for exactly the reasons that you just pointed out. It's like, we, if you don't look in that regime, you'll never know the answer. You cannot assume that you will know this. You cannot uh, take just some some theoretical motivation in some capacity and extrapolate in, that into a regime where you've never looked for something. And it's it's the history of particle physics has demonstrated to us that that's crazy to ever think that way. If you were to, you know, for example, example, speaking of regimes that we had looked at, right, if you were to just take the discovery of the proton and stop, it's like, oh, we have an electron and we have a proton. They're both uh, small things, and one has a positive charge and one has negative charge. Done. If you're never going to look closer at the proton, you never would have discovered that there's stuff inside there. You you would you would never have looked into a regime where you had not uh, had not looked before, and that's really the you know one of the th- one of the biggest things that we can always do with with uh, particle physics, right? Is that we have the standard model is extremely successful, but as you pointed out, it cannot be the complete picture of nature for the reasons you pointed out. It does not contain gravity, and I know that gravity exists. I can jump up in the air and it brings me back down to the earth. I demonstrated that gravity exists, and gravity is not in the standard model, and that's a disaster. People have had you know theoretical wonderful theoretical ideas as to how to put these two things together. Some of them right now are not so testable. In the future, we hope that they will be. But again, we it's not our job to 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 to, to pass judgment upon nature's you know laws or or, or 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 judge how elegant as nature's laws are. It's just our job to as a species, as a curious species, to look at places where we haven't looked, to perform experiments that we haven't performed yet, because we'll never know the answer if we don't. No, and and sometimes you have to look extremely intricately, and what you find is really surprising. So, for example, um, I can say, oh, um, I think the muon should have these particular properties, right? The muon is the heavy, unstable cousin of the electron, and I'm like, it should have these particular properties, and it should have this particular electromagnetic coupling. And so I can go ahead and calculate it using quantum field theory to the fullest of my ability, and I can go and measure it doing experiments that go and measure it. And when I get down to the ninth significant digit in what we call the G of the muon, the G minus two, or this is the electromagnetic coupling of the muon, I find that there's actually a difference in the ninth significant figure between what theory predicts 
and what experiments give. And if I go and look at the electron to less significance, but also in that ninth digit, I see that same discrepancy. Now that is not something we have a good explanation for. It may turn out that as we do better experiments, maybe they'll fall in line. Maybe we'll discover an error like we did with the opera faster than light neutrinos thing a decade ago. But maybe we're on the cusp of something real. And unless we go and look deeper at the muon, we'll never know unless we go and make these measurements of the Higgs boson and we create large numbers of Higgses and we create them through these uh, inverse coupling mechanisms or we create them uh, where we know they should decay into different particles at these specific energies. Um, We'll never know. We'll never know what these properties are. And I feel like that's just knowing when you know, if I look here, I'm going to know an answer to a question that I have that I might think I know the answer to, but I don't know for sure. For example, I could have predicted for you, oh yeah, the Higgs boson, whatever it is, is going to have this narrow width. And you could say, how do you know? I was like, and I can say, well, according to my predictions, the Higgs should have this specific lifetime. And I know from Heisenberg that there's an energy time uncertainty. And so if I know my delta T, because I know it's lifetime, then I should know my delta E, which means my energy uncertainty, which means the width. But I think a lot of people were surprised when we discovered the top quark at how big the width of the top quark is. That when you make a top quark, sometimes you get a top quark that the mass is 175 GeV. And sometimes you get a top quark where the mass is 184 GeV. And sometimes you get a top quark where the mass is only 172 GeV. Because the top quark has a large width. Because it has a shorter lifetime than anything we've ever imagined. It's the only quark that we know of that we've never seen bound into a meson or a baryon. We've never seen it bound in either a three-quark system or a quark-anti-quark -quark system. We've only ever created it, and it's lived for such a short time that it's immediately decayed before it could even what we call hadronize. There was no guarantee that the Higgs was going to have the relatively long lifetime that it has. I think the Higgs is something like, I think its width is maybe only like 5 or 10% the width of the top quark. It's very small. Yeah. But unless we measure it, we don't know. And now, unless we go and we measure these decay ratios and fractions and the branching ratios and the lifetime to greater precision and these rare decay channels that should show up, but the LHC doesn't have the doesn't create enough Higgses to do that or doesn't create enough Higgses with the right properties or at the right energies to see these rare channels, we'll never know. We'll just assume we know the answer and we'll never know if those assumptions are correct or erroneous. Correct. Yeah, it's a, it's a hugely important uh, part of the story, you know. Um, one, uh, one thing that I wanted to, you know, kind of jump off on there is that one of the things you mentioned about these this notion of like looking for uh, uh, or chasing after anomalies in a way or following up on anomalies, it's very important to what we do. And the G minus two is another a good example of uh, how particle physics is not just the Large Hadron Collider. I, you know, maybe I hesitate to say that as an Atlas man, but uh, I've also worked on other experiments in my life um, in my career so far. And 
one of the cool things about you know about physics is that about particle physics there's a large number of places where new discoveries could show up for all the reasons that we have been implicitly talking about here you know think about all the things that we've just been sort of breathlessly talking about here couplings of the higgs of different things the muon da -da 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 -da, this and that deep elastic, elastic scattering the standard model even though it's this wildly successful thing it's hugely intricate it's too super intricate and so there's so many different places and little things here and there that you you know just from the rules of quantum field theory you put things together in certain ways and you get predictions that a lot of them we can't possibly test now with our existing machines and so that's why new machines have to be built but the place where these you know we can test these kind of edges these sort of tails of distributions the the very very small uh you know couplings and extremely weak things or, or extremely feeble things are not just at higher machines in fact they're in the other direction as well so for example the g minus two of the muon one of the postulates, one of the good ways, the kind of very straightforward, just from plain vanilla quantum field theory considerations, one of the ways that this value could be significantly pushed away from what we expect in the standard model is if there's an extra particle in there that is taking care of some that is that is causing some other Feynman diagrams to go into that calculation, and therefore it could make the value that we observe different than what we'd expect just from the standard model itself. And so, for example. You could have a, a by analogy to the regular photon, you could have something called a dark photon. This would be a, a photon-like particle that instead would have a little bit of a mass, but it's very small mass. But the key part about the dark photon is that it would only couple or or talk to the standard model at an extremely weak rate, an extremely feeble weight and rate. So, for example, if the electron, you know, if you take the electron charge as a as a kind of baseline for the the rate at which uh, the you know the the uh, an electron uh, uh, could talk. To this day or you know is part of the standard model this dark photon would be something like 10 to the minus 4 10 to the minus 8 10 to the minus 12 compared to that that's extremely weak and there's no way you're going to build up enough statistics at us at a, you know at a hadron machine at a hadron collider to look for the existence of this dark photon and except as of a few years ago the existence of this dark photon could have been one good way to explain why the g minus 2 of the muon is so significantly different from what it is but to rule that out out as a possibility, we had to build dedicated machines that look for things in very, very low mass range. Not, you know, we we look for things at the Large Hadron Collider at the you know 125 GeV or the you know squarks and gluinos at one or two or three TeV or Z prime particles at one or two or three TeV. This dark photon could have a mass down at about one GeV, similar to the proton mass, which is nothing compared to what we're looking for. And you really don't have the sensitivity to its production and decay as good as sensitivity at a big hadron machine and instead what you can do is you can use existing fixed target machines around the world things like jefferson lab has these and uh places in germany these are these are a little bit you know they don't get all of the press that the large hadron collider does but these are places where the brand new revolutionary physics could show up because the discovery of a dark photon would be total game changing that would you know it'd be the first hint of concrete evidence beyond the standard model outside of you know neutrino masses themselves and that that, that you know the discovery could show up there. So the rich panoply of the type of experiments that we perform all around the world for particle physics, you know, is it's a wonderfully busy field, and you know, it's 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 difficult to keep track of all of them. And I think that sometimes it's a little bit unfortunate that the that the big energy machines get all of the uh, get you know get most of the press because there's so many fantastic things going on all over the world.
Right. And I, I think this is just so important. Even at the LHC, you have less famous experiments than CMS and Atlas that are doing incredibly important work. Like you have LHCB, which is producing these particles that contain bottom quarks and is measuring CP violation, which is one of the three ingredients you need to create a matter-antimatter asymmetry in the universe. And yeah. it's discovering CP violation in these particles that we had not tested before. It's finding them in bottom quark-containing particles, in charm quark-containing particles. Um, you had just a few years ago, the uh, Bell and Babar collaborations were racing to try and observe direct time reversal symmetry violation, which they found. You have these neutrino baseline experiments that are just taking these lower energy machines, using them to produce neutrinos, and then miles or hundreds or thousands of miles away. They have these big detectors measuring neutrino oscillations, seeing where did the neutrinos go, seeing if anything anomalous is happening. And some of them are finding that something anomalous is happening. And I think that when people think of particle physics, it would be much more accurate if they had a picture of something like the LHC on one hand, that you have this brute force frontier pushing higher energy, higher luminosity, higher rate of collision particle physics experiments, along with what I'll call these finesse experiments, with these experiments that are looking in gory, gory detail at these very specific types of lower energy processes to try to get that extra significant digit onto them, to try and look for an order of magnitude smaller of a beyond the standard model effect. And it's through a combination of both, through these brute force endeavors and also through these finesse endeavors that we can put together our most accurate picture of the universe possible and try and say, okay, if this is what we know right now, what are the best ideas and the best places to look for the next huge revolutionary discovery? Absolutely. Um, and I, you know, I think that that's super important to keep all of these in mind when we think about what particle physics is. It's a very rich, very broad field of a lot of different experiments, and they all have to work in concert, you know, and they also all have to agree, right? It was one of the reasons why you mentioned earlier that uh, it was so it was so exciting and somewhat surprising that both Atlas and CMS very quickly saw the Higgs boson at exactly the same place. But that was designed that way, right? I mean, we the reason why you have both Atlas and CMS, which are designed to be so-called general purpose detectors here at the Large Hadron Collider, is because if one of them discovered the Higgs boson and the other one did not, you would never believe the discovery, right? They're supposed to corroborate each other's findings. The same happens with the you know different experiments around the world. If if Atlas and CMS, for example, or you know better example, if LHCb sees a particular deviation, you know, in some CP violating uh, violation in some sector we hadn't looked in before. The, it then behooves the B physics community around the world to then build something, you know, like Bell two or you know the the, the successors here. Um, the it, it behooves them to also perform the same experiment to corroborate that finding. That's the way we're going to be able to understand and believe it uh, moving forward. Sorry, not believe. It's the way we're going to understand and trust the uh, the you know the 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 result uh, to its fullest extent. And then you know 
and it's interesting what you said is I, I wanted to touch upon two things related to two things you mentioned. One is uh, so-called lifetimes of particles. And the other, you mentioned earlier about the so-called nightmare scenario that you were taught, uh, you know, as a, as a student or, or earlier in your career. And so, yeah, sometimes people use this word, the nightmare scenario at the Large Hadron Collider. The nightmare scenario could be the, the LHC goes for its entire range, uh, its entire run, and doesn't discover anything beyond the, Hig the Higgs boson. Okay, as we've pointed out for the, you know, last many uh, many minutes that's garbage it's not at all the nightmare scenario um, because we will our every single paper we publish is a is a new measurement about the standard model it, if it shows that there's no squarks no gluinos in a certain ra mass range or no dark matter uh, mediator particles in a certain mass range that means that the standard model behaves in an expected way in that regime where we'd never looked before so that that argument is is out the window it's not it's it, you know it, uh, these are these are fundamental measurements that we're making every single paper we publish However, the nightmare scenario to me is really at the end of the Large Hadron Collider's run. If somebody, you know, if Jill Theorist then raises her hand and says, aha, I know why you didn't find anything else at the, at, the, at the Large Hadron Collider beyond the Higgs. It's because you didn't keep the right events and you didn't do the right uh, data analyses. As you know, at the Large Hadron Collider, we collide protons at such a high rate that we can't possibly write all of those events to disk fast enough. And so we don't even try. In fact, we toss away something like 99.999% of our data. And it's true. It does make a physicist cry to think about that, to, you know, tossing away some of this, this data. Except we knew before you, you know, we know before we plan an experiment like this that the overwhelming majority of the collisions, just based upon the very straightforward statistical, you know, understanding of quantum field theory, most of those collisions are going to give you stuff that you already know and love quite well, so-called QCD, quantum chromodynamics, jet physics, a lot of kind of soft jets flo floating around. And we know those quite well. We don't have to keep all of them. So we go out of our way in a very elaborate uh, uh, method of triggering on certain types of events that have unique objects in them that we know uh, have a better chance of being a handle or a potential evidence of a new particle. And but that but that triggering thing gets quite dicey, right? It gets quite tricky. You have to make sure you have to convince yourself that you're triggering on all the right events. And you know the the rate at, at you know and the the number of events of a certain type of trigger. So for example, let's say that I want to keep all events that have two high high momentum muons coming out of them and basically nothing else. So those are pretty rare. So you want to keep all of those. However, you have to put a certain threshold on the momentum of the muon that's coming out of the out of the detector. And you have to put it up to a certain rate so that you can still write all of those to disk. What if the new physics is actually hiding in a regime where it's down below what the current momentum rate uh, or the momentum rate range of the muon that you're keeping is? So you have to think very critically that, okay, we need to make sure we're not missing any important triggered events. Thus, this relates to the thing you've mentioned about lifetime. So one of the things that I have been uh, very interested in for a few years now is to make sure that we at the Large Hadron Collider at the main detectors, you know, a Atlas, CMS, LHCB, ALICE, the other fourth one we haven't talked so much about so far, I wanted to make sure that we were thinking about the so-called lifetime frontier in a very critical, uh, uh, open way. Because almost all of the the data analyses, all of the searches that we look for for new physics in our data at, the, at Atlas, CMS, LHCB, almost all of them, not at LHCB, but Atlas and CMS, we 
make the basic assumption, like 95 to 99 percent of our of our searches assume that the new particle that we could create in the middle of our collision lives for a tiny fraction of a second, so-called prompt, and it decays promptly. And that prompt, of course, is a pretty wide range if you're talking from a from a purely objective standpoint, something like 10 to the minus 12 seconds up to or down to you know infinitely small. But what we mean is that it decays at such a range that it more or less decays right immediately uh, close to the uh, the actual interaction point of the proton proton when they collide in the middle of the detector but if you think about it that's not the most well motivated assumption because the lifetimes of particles and when i'm not even talking about the di the, the distinction between the the top quark uh, lifetime and the higgs lifetime that's a that's a wide that's a pretty wide range but for the large hadron collider those are both the, the, both those decays are considered prompt I'm talking about something that what if you have a new particle that instead of decaying immediately, in fact, it drifts a little bit into your detector in the XY plane, meaning uh, away from, uh, you know, in like in an up or down direction from the from the collision axis of the two proton protons. What if it drifts a bit into your de detector, like centimeters mil uh, 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 or like an entire meter and then decays? That's going to look like garbage compared to based upon all of our algorithms that assume that what you're looking for is something that decays promptly thus but if you think about it that's a completely justified assumption because the standard model itself has particles that have a huge range of lifetimes you mentioned the muon earlier which is this heavier cousin of the electron and in fact it la it lives quite a long time compared to the electron i'm sorry uh, it lives quite a long time before then decaying it's weird because if you do the you know you've probably done this any physicist worth their salt has done this uh, has done this um uh, exp uh, this exercise in a in a particle physics class where you talk about how the lifetime of the muon should should in fact make it so that it never makes it to the earth once it's produced in a, in a you know in a cosmic ray collision in the upper atmosphere but in fact we have each one of you has about one cosmic ray muon coming through your head every second so these th make it from a, from a, and it's a it's a special relative relativistic effect i encourage people to do the calculation but we know that the muon has these extra long lifetime properties no in fact that's why that's why the atlas detector is as big as the atlas detector is is because those outer layers of your detector are to get those muons because those muons are still around that far away from the collision point cuz they haven't decayed yet and right. this is really a tough problem because you are colliding particles in the atlas and cms detectors at such a high frequency that by time, you know, you get a collision that, you know, okay, let's say you have this particle and it doesn't decay for, you know, a nanosecond, right? Or a few nanoseconds and it drifts away from the collision point and then it decays. You might already have another collision, a new collision taking place at the center of your detector already. So this triggering problem, this which data do we keep, which data do we throw away, even though it's improved tremendously with computational advances, right? When you were when people were talking about building the LHC uh, two decades ago, they were talking about maybe we'd be able to keep one in a million of these collision events, and now they're keeping I. I think one in 30,000 of these collision events, and that's solely due to advances, but you still can't keep everything. And it's a complicated problem of what yep. do we keep? What do we throw away? I'm so glad that you're one of the people working on addressing exactly that issue. 
and it's precisely because of this 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 attitude you know the the real attitude of uh, of, of of experimental particle physicists right it's like my job again is uh, my job is not to discover a new particle my job is to rule out all the possibilities that particles could exist somewhere in our data and one of the ones we hadn't been thinking about so critically uh, is the so-called lifetime frontier so you know again if you have a particle that's produced and instead it drifts a bit into your detector before decaying let's make sure we're not missing that as a possible triggering uh, thing so once we get the, the, the events to disk, we can analyze and we can look for that. No problem. Okay, well, it's quite complicated, but you trust me. From my perspective, no problem. If we don't keep those on, on tape, then in the future, that's the possible nightmare scenario. We didn't trigger on something correctly. So it's, you know, there's, there's those of us that are, that are really excited about this, the, you know, the, 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 the next couple of uh, decades or decade and a half of data taking of the LHC, that's one of our biggest challenges is to make sure that our triggering strategies are robust and wide ranging and uh, 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 casting a wide enough net to make sure that we get all these events on tape that will, you know, more or less cover this possibility as well. Because Lifetime Frontier is a, is a, is a fascinating uh, place to look for new physics as well. And I think I think this is wonderful because what what I'm going to take as the big takeaway of all of this is that we we can look at it as like okay I um I've I've wandered into a cave and in particle physics you know I'll use your hammer analogy we've we've used our hammer at various places on the wall and we've we've smashed through to some different rooms and we've uncovered the standard model and we we see these little hints as we feel around in this cave of uh you know oh maybe there's a way in here maybe the wall is thin here maybe there's another room just beyond this here and we have to look in every way possible. Sometimes that's going to mean tapping and listening and hearing. Is there something behind there? Sometimes that's going to mean taking out a, a chisel and trying to carve your way into the next room. And sometimes you won't go anywhere. And sometimes that's going to mean brute forcing it as hard as you can and trying to, trying to push at those boundaries and see is there a way in. And sometimes it means looking very carefully on the floor or the ceiling and seeing if if there's actually a little chamber beneath the stalagmites or above the stalactites um you have to look in every way possible with every tool at your disposal and you have to be careful about it because nature could be hiding its secrets anywhere and unless you look in every way you're capable of looking to the utmost precision you're capable of looking at pushing the lifetime frontiers the precision frontiers the number of significant digits frontiers the energy frontiers the collision rate frontiers etc unless you're pushing all of those frontiers you're you're basically leaving possible places where these secrets could be hiding on the table and so what you're trying to do is is shine as much light in as many places as possible and try and either rule out where these secrets could be hiding or i know it's not your exact goal but there's always that possibility that you will get lucky and you will discover that next clue that's going to lead us beyond the standard model in a robust, repeatable particle physics fashion that that will lead you to say, okay, in 2019, this is what we thought all of physics was. And now in 2033, now we know there's more to the universe than just what we thought in 2019. 
Absolutely. I think sometimes that uh, I, I would love if I had, you know, if I had one wish, I mean, forget about three wishes, I could go a lot, I could talk a lot about three wishes. But if I had one, I would love to be able to be alive 200 years from now or 500 years from now, you know, or if we were to invent time travel, it would definitely go in the near future to just realize how ignorant we are right now and just say, oh, my goodness, that was that look at what they've discovered now that that's what dark matter is or, oh, my goodness, that's why matter, you know, why, why are you? is made of matter and not antimatter like oh my goodness our uh, we had a basic misunderstanding of uh, of of what uh, of you know of, of higgs physics or you know or 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 two higgs doublet models or or substructure or composite higgs you know it, i would love to be able to see that firsthand because it's going to happen we know we i mean that's why right now you kind of mentioned this 2019 that's why t- to me right now it's such an exciting time to be alive as a physicist as a scientist as a basic curious human being because we seem to be right on the cusp of a revolution but we don't really know where that revolution is going to come from we don't know where the new idea the new experiment that explains what dark matter is or what we observe as being dark matter is will come from we don't know where you know uh, multi-messenger astronomy is going to take us and how this kind of fits together in, in terms of what we're learning in terms of particle physics and how cosmology and observational astronomy all these things are working together we don't have a clear picture as to what's beyond 13 TeV. In 500 years, people will think, look back and they'll think, oh yeah, I discovered the Higgs boson at 13 t- trillion electron volts. We're up to like th- tens of thousands of trillions of electrons volts now. It's like, we, you know, we have learned so much beyond, thank you for your fundamental work, but we're way beyond you now. I think they'll look, they'll look back at our, at our, you know, even vague head scratching as to whether, or like hand wringing. It's like, well, should we really build a bigger collider? Of course we should build a bigger collider. As you pointed out, Ethan, we have to look everywhere and if we don't look everywhere where these new discoveries could be hiding we're betraying the history of humans acting curiously and i would never ever allow myself to do that as a physicist as a as a, as a scientist or just as a human you know i think i think that is just it's so important and it's such it's such a point that I think gets lost as people bicker over the details of, oh, should we build this and not this? And should we invest in fighting climate change versus, you know, looking for new particles or building a new telescope? And I think, you know, when we talk about what these big advances are that have driven our species forward, it has always included advances in our fundamental understanding of the universe that that investing in pushing these scientific frontiers as far as we can that's a payoff in and of itself that's a payoff as far as human knowledge goes that's a payoff as far as our understanding of the universe goes that tomorrow's r&d advances tomorrow's technological advances are only possible because of yesterday and today's advances in fundamental science. You know, we we would not have genetic engineering if we had not sequenced genomes of species, and we would not have sequenced genomes if we didn't know about genetics, and we wouldn't know about genetics if we didn't understand evolution. So, you know, yeah. just as in biology, you can see how one thing leads to the next. In physics, this is true also. The solid state physics and the LED physics and the relativistic physics that works your genes. GPS in your smartphone. All of this is based on physics knowledge that was gained during the 20th and early 21st centuries. And without that, we wouldn't have the technologies we do today. 
I can't tell you what the payoff is going to be from the next fundamental physics breakthrough. That's going to be, as you envision it, hundreds of years down the road, likely. But yeah. if we don't do those advances now, if we don't push those frontiers now, we are either delaying or, in a worst-case scenario, just ensuring that human beings don't gain these secrets, learn this knowledge, and... To me, the not looking, the giving up, the the concluding it isn't worth it, that's the biggest nightmare I can imagine, is to just choose ignorance when knowing is possible. Yeah, I think it was, uh, I think it's a famous Doug Douglas Adams quote, right? It's like, I, I will take the awe of understanding over the awe of ignorance any day, right? Because that's, you know, it gets to the heart of the thing. And it's exactly what you're talking about. And, you know, and it, even though I, I don't typically think this way, because I, you know, I, I talk to a, I talk to a lot of non non-specialists on purpose. I like to, you know, stretch myself in terms of understanding what, you know, what it, why I do what I do, and being able to talk to people about particle physics. Um, it always comes up in some capacity. You know, it's like, well, what does humanity get out of this research? Yes, you're pushing the boundaries of curiosity, and you know, what do you get out of this? And exactly what you're talking about, to my mind, any time your species does something that it's never done before, for example, building a 100-kilometer tunnel around the uh, around the Celeve mountain range in the border of France and Switzerland, you inevitably produce new technologies that somebody could use somewhere. It's like, it's not my job to tell you what you're going to do with the technology that you have to innovate to, you know, to, to build the particle collider around uh, the Celeb Mountains 100 kilometers around. That's up to you. I'm an, I'm an experimentalist, not a product developmentalist, right? So this has always happened with the history of particle physics. And like you've mentioned, genomics and other places, but, it, you know, for example, if you've ever known anyone that's had a cancer even either detected or treated by a CT scan or a PET scan, that was just a side benefit of our particle physics forebears messing around with particles. No one said to themselves, I'm going to uh, accelerate protons and look inside of a foot. No. Somebody said, wait a minute, I could use this to image inside the body. And there you go. Another, you know, all of the classic examples we can tick off on the boxes. The World Wide Web was invented in the 1980s at CERN just so particle physics nerds could more efficiently share data around the world. And now you can watch cat videos or, you know, or for example, you can, you know, you can make a consultation on a, on a search surgery anywhere in the world you know you you have major advances in rf power and you know if you also want to get down to brass tacks particle physics more than pays for itself over and over in terms of the number of people that you know that 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 are really bright they get trained for other fields their knowledge that is transferred to other things this is inevitable this always happens it's not even a question um and you know also i mean let's also in, in terms of being concrete People, if anyone balks at these types of uh, projects or they start to say, you know, if you want to be this kind of person where you're like, oh, well, you know, I, uh, th this seems like it's a lot of money, you know, we, and like you pointed out, maybe we should put this toward climate change or, 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 or to, other, uh, you know, to other problems, solving poverty, things like this. The entire budget right now for the, the estimated budget for the entirety of this so-called future collider, circular collider, this, you know, this proposed 100-kilometer uh, tunnel, uh, either an E plus E minus machine and then going to a hadron, hadronic collider machine or right out of the starting gate, a hadronic collider machine, from now to when it will end its program, if it, ha if it goes through, it's about a 70-year time span. The entire estimated budget of that 70-year time span is less than 5% of one year of the U.S. military budget. So don't anyone ever tell me that these are, exp these are expensive projects. If we as a society prioritize 
pushing the boundaries of human nature, of, of human knowledge, understanding dark matter, understanding our place in the universe. Where do we come from? Where are we going? Are there multiple universes? Understanding better about if we prioritize human curiosity as much as or more than we prioritize, uh, you know, bombing Yemen or or these, you know, the, the or or being warmongers, that we we would be able to, we would have discovered the Higgs boson back in the 70s. We would be, we would know what dark matter is right now. We would understand whether we live in a multiverse right now. You know, that, 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 when you get to that point, you have to be very clear what it is that you mean when, when, you know, when you talk about these things. James, thank you for such a wonderful, far-reaching discussion and for those inspirational words where we should look to the future of the human enterprise. These are, these are civilization-level questions and beyond that we're asking, and we're actually at a point in our in our history right now where we have the ability to push those frontiers further and i can think of no worse outcome no more unfortunate outcome than it would be if we didn't seize this opportunity and if we didn't go for it when we have the tools we have the talent we have the technological capabilities and we have all of these scientists with the expertise and the know-how and the capabilities of bringing this dream to fruition. James, thank you so much for joining us here on the Starts With a Bang podcast. If people want to find James online, his website is jbbeacham, that's B-E-A-C-H-A-M.com, and he is a postdoctoral researcher affiliated with Duke University, but who's based in CERN working on the Atlas experiment. James, thank you for joining us. Do you have any final words for our listeners? Thank you very much, Ethan. It's absolutely my pleasure to uh, to join you. And I guess my final thought would be just everyone always stay curious, always ask the big questions, and always allow yourself the bravery of stepping into the unknown because that's where the big discovery could be. Uh, and I just thank you very much for having me. It's been my pleasure. So you can follow James online, and thank you for tuning in to this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. This podcast is made possible through the generous donation of our Patreon supporters, and I'd like to give a shout out to everyone donating at the $5 a month level and above. Thanks go to Chad Marler, Cliff Elgin, Robert Hansen, Samir Kumar, Aaron White, Pete Smoyer, Paulina Barron, Stefan Bernegger, John Van Balaguyan, Dominic Turpin, Tim Graham, John Methot, Pavel Zuzelski, Thomas Sola, Denier, Frank, Eric Brown, Pedro Texera, Igor Mitrofanov, Joseph Dvorak, Jeffrey David Maracini, Juan Jose Gomez Garcia, Punitive Expedition, Patrick Dennis, Jens Kroger, Laird WH, Mark Armstrong, Jose Enrique, Sean Foley, Flo, Richard Jousey, DGE, John Kozura, Marcelo Barnaba, Rafal Wojcik, Brian Terry, Danny, Alexander Marius, Andrew Douglas, Chris Hilly, Jason McCampbell, Weller Tractor Salvage, Chris Jukutas, Adrian Griffiths, William Blair, Jason Luttrell, Brainwise, Ken Blackman, Pierre Franzen, Dick Pills, Hannah Kahn, Andrew Jason, Mark Langston, David Krampotic, Randall Slimak, Jerry Wilterding, Tom Van Scotter, Michael Lewis, Mike, Ahmed Lee Comsey, Dana Bridges, Kelly Kudrick, Richard Schwartz, Darren Redfern, Mark Bloor, Fraser Kane, Steve Shaber, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Kevin Barnes, Radek Nesbida, James Nance, Sidney Atwood, Nathan Hanna, Tomas All, Glenn McDavid, Benjamin Turner, David Taschioni, Philip Radlovic, and Braxton Thomason. Thanks everyone for tuning in, and I'll see you next time here for more Starts With a Bang. <laughs> <laughs>